All right, good evening, everybody. Good to see you guys. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2? Peter ends chapter 1 of his epistle by talking about the true prophets of God and how they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the word inspiration means God breathed. And so God breathed into these men his words. And of course, these men then wrote down the words of God. Uh, God spoke through them, actually, of course, speaking through them, inspiring their words, which were eventually written down and became the Word of God, our New Testament. Of course, as people then have gotten a hold of God's Word, I'm thinking primarily the New Testament, the New Covenant, um, as they embrace what the prophets spoke, as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, it brought new life to those that embraced God's Word, the Gospel, and uh, made them new creations. And of course, the ultimate blessing was that they were going to be, all of us would be uh, members of God's kingdom for eternity, and that's a blessing. And so he uh, ends chapter 1 with that, talking about true prophets and how God uh, used them to bring forth his word through. And then as we've uh, talked about, from that point he moves into the second chapter of his epistle, which there were no chapters in Peter's day. He just was writing on parchment and just kept going. But uh, we, it was our, our second chapter now. He moves into it and proceeds to talk about false prophets, false teachers, and the judgment of God coming upon them for claiming to be ministers of righteousness, as Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, really uh, ministers of Satan. And we know they're ministers of Satan uh, because they pervert God's word, twisting it, and Peter said, even denying the Lord Jesus who bought them, in other words, denying his person and work, Peter called their teachings destructive heresies, uh, damning heresies, because if embraced, they will damn a person for eternity in hell. These are the uh, false prophets that Jesus warned about in Matthew 7, who uh, stand in front of the narrow way which leads to life and they wave people down the broad way that leads to hell, a way that's marked this way to heaven, this way to God, but it is not. It's only the cross of Jesus Christ uh, and Jesus himself that is the narrow way, right? And so, but, but Peter said, look, their day is coming, these false prophets. Their day is coming, right? And he ends verse 3 with the words, but God condemned them long ago and their destruction will not be Delayed, And then Peter gives a couple examples of those who preached righteousness. Now, he's just compared uh, God's prophets with false prophets. And now he gives us a couple examples of those who preached, who preached righteousness, in other words, who preached God's truth, at a time when pretty much everyone else was preaching or proclaiming uh, lies, devil's lies, and so on. He talks about uh, Noah and Lot, and both of these men preached in their day. Uh, they preached righteousness, they preached the truth. When everyone else around them was preaching a message of unrighteousness, deception, and destruction. So first he talks about Noah. And he just mentions these. He doesn't get into anything. We've talked at length the last couple of weeks on verses 4 and 5. But let me just read them to you once again. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, 
a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Let me stop there. We've already talked about this. If you weren't here the last few weeks, go online and uh, listen to the last two previous studies, because we really went into this in detail. But I believe Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness because he wants to, he wanted to contrast Noah as somebody who was preaching the truth with all the others that Noah's in Noah's day, in fact, pretty much the whole world, uh, were full of preachers. We talked about this. Uh, many men, angels even. He talks about angels here. God did not spare the angels who sinned. Part of what these fallen angels did was to preach a message to the world that people can become God, just like in the Garden of Eden. Satan tried to tell Eve that, you know, you can really become God. That's what God's worried about. You just need to be enlightened. Eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and your eyes will be open. And that's the same message he's got going on today. But today we are living at a time when the lie has spread out into the, through the entire world. What is the lie? Basically, the lie is that you can become God, or that you're already God, you just don't know it. You've got to be enlightened to that truth. And we talked about Romans 1.25, 2 Thessalonians 2.11, where Paul talks about the lie, a very specific lie that... I believe goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the lie that Satan told Eve. And if you really are curious and you weren't here, go online and listen to the studies. But let me just say this, and I don't feel I'm overstating it. You might think, are you crazy? I don't think I'm overstating it based on what we studied the last couple of weeks. But we could say without overstating it that ultimately false teachers and false doctrine were the ultimate cause of the flood. Now, I realize there was a lot of immorality. But think of it, if you can convince people they're really God and they answer to nobody but themselves, that's going to lead to a lot of immorality because now the flesh is in control. The flesh is in control. The flesh wants to do what it wants to do anyways. But if you can convince people that really they are gods and they answer to nobody but themselves, that's going to lead to a lot of immorality and wickedness. And that's really what the flood was all about, purging the earth of, of that kind of thing and so many other things that we talked about when we studied uh, those verses. Then he talks about Lot and the judgment God brought upon the wicked in his day. Verse 6, And turning to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now, we all know that Lot was the nephew of Abraham and a believer, although a bit of an enigma. If Peter had not called Lot a righteous man, in other words, a guy who was saved, we would be prone to believe that Lot was an unbeliever, given where he chose to live. In one of the most violent, wicked cities of the ancient world, Sodom. The city of Sodom was so rife with militant homosexuality that the very name Sodom has become a word we use to describe homosexuals and homosexual practices. Sodomites and sodomy come from, of course, Sodom. Lot knew how wicked his city was. Peter tells us his righteous soul was troubled or vexed every day by their lawless and perverted uh, living. Uh, the men of Sodom, and yet he still chose to live there. He still chose to live there and made his family live there also. 
Now, to fully understand what Peter is talking about here, turn to Genesis 19. Because Peter makes some incredible doctrinal points in the most casual way. He just throws it out and moves on. But if you really understand what he's, what, what he's talking about, it's incredible from a doctrinal standpoint. So Genesis 19, starting with verse 1 now. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. To understand what's going on, you have to go back to chapter 18, where Abraham was uh, there in the you know, cool of his tent in the heat of the day. And um, suddenly, three strangers came out of nowhere, probably literally, uh, you know, because he could probably see way, and all of a sudden, here these guys were, probably just materialized. We learn later, uh, there were two angels and the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance, all right? And so in a, in a very traditional Middle Eastern way, Abraham uh, has Sarah whip up some pancakes, or you know, I don't know if that's traditional, but you know, something for these guys to eat, you know, and, and all. And, and they got to talking, and uh, the Lord Jesus said to the angels, shall we let Abraham in on what we're here for? And so the Lord let Abraham in on the fact that uh, the cry of the wickedness of Sodom had come up before the throne of God, and uh, they were there to wipe the city Actually, it wasn't just Sodom. It was Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities of the plain. Okay? Uh, very wicked area. So the two angels go. Now, they're going to Sodom to wipe the city out. Okay? Abraham's kind of horrified because he knows his nephew Lot lives there. And so Abraham tries to uh, bargain with the Lord. He's not really bargaining. He's, he's just basically saying, well, Lord... You know, if there's 50 righteous in the city, would you destroy the whole city? Uh, you destroy this, the 50 righteous along with the city? And the Lord says, no, I'll spare it for the sake of the 50. And he goes down to 45, you know, 40, 30, 20, I think gets down to 10. And Well, Lord, if there's 10 righteous in the city, will you spare the city for the sake of the 10? I'll spare it for the sake of the 10. Where there really wasn't 10, there was one lot. So Abraham, of course, the Lord stays back with Abraham. And now the two angels come to Sodom. And uh, they come in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, uh, Hear now, my, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet, that you may rise early and go on your way. They said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, because Lot said, that's a very bad idea. Don't do that, okay? Lot insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. Notice, this was not a few punks or a handful of reprobates. It says, all the men of Sodom, both old and young, surrounded Lot's house with the purpose of gang-raping Lot's two visitors, who they didn't know were angels, obviously. But it does show the depth and scope of the perversion that was in that city. Verse 5, and they called the Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them Currently, the idea is that we may engage in sexual acts with them. So Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. 
See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man, two virgin daughters. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. I can't even imagine that. Only do nothing to these men, since for this reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, the men of Sodom said, stand back. Then they said, this one's talking about Lot. This one came in uh, in to stay here in our town, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Now look, granted, Lot wasn't a spiritual giant, okay? I mean, he's living in Sodom, right? Offers his two daughters to this gang. So if you want to rape someone or, you know, rape my two daughters, but leave these guys alone because they're my guests. So, you know, that's not, you know, people, well, that was just Middle Eastern uh, culture to protect anyone who came under the protection of your roof. I don't care what it was. There's no way I'm offering my daughter or daughters to be raped, gang raped. I, that, you know, so obviously Lot was not a spiritual giant, but he was saved. He was saved. And he did try to reason with these men from a position of righteousness. In fact, it seems from what the men of Sodom said about Lot, how that he keeps acting as a judge, that would seem to indicate that he often preached righteousness to these men. That he did share with them God's truth, you know, in the area of morality and what God considered acceptable and homosexuality was not acceptable uh, by God. It was punishable by death. And um, so, but obviously, it didn't uh, have too much of an effect on them. In fact, they just got irritated. And they said, you know, this guy keeps acting as a judge. He keeps telling us, you know, he called, he called their lifestyle wicked, basically. He said, don't do this wicked thing, raping these guys, right? And so these men got very upset. I don't believe there is any group of people in our country that is more filled with rage than the homosexual community. Not all of them, but for the most part, yeah. And God forbid you should try to challenge them. I've done it, okay? And I've, I've seen the effect, all right? Uh, I'm not saying we don't, we don't share the gospel. I'm just saying be prepared because there's something inside that the devil has worked in the hearts of these people that they're just driven with this perversion and anyone who would try to stand in their way in fulfilling these perverted acts, they don't want to just get you out of the way. They want to destroy you. And so uh, they uh, desired to rape these two visitors. They didn't know they were angels. He calls it wicked, Lot does. Again, which sent these militant homosexuals into a hate-filled tirade and made them more determined to carry out their perverted desires not just on the two visitors, but now on all three men, Lot included. So again, verse 9, so at the middle of the verse, so they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men, re the, men the angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to to find the door. I mean, the angels have just struck these men with blindness. You think that would have caused them to be you know, to break off the attack, but they're so consumed with this perverted desire 
They're, they weary themselves out trying to find the door to get in and rape these men. Verse 12, the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place? For we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry. Verse 16, and while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him and his wife and daughters. Keep that in mind. The angels brought him out and set him outside the city. So it, be, so it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life, the angels told Lot and his family. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Now, Peter understands that whole story and assumes his readers do too. Now, we've familiarized ourselves with it. And Peter is zeroing in on this story, how that Lot was delivered out of Sodom. Listen, before God's judgment was poured out, in fact, verse in verse 22 one of the angels that was sent by the Lord to destroy Sodom said he couldn't even begin to bring God's judgment upon Sodom until Lot, the only righteous guy in the city, was gone. As Peter is talking about God's judgment being poured out in the wicked, that's chapter 2 basically, he, he then uses the story of Lot, who was a believer, okay, as we've said, being delivered out of Sodom, which Peter is using as a type of the world. A lot was delivered out of Sodom before God's judgment. He is now going to use that whole story as a type of another judgment that is coming upon the world. The judgment Peter has in mind is talked about in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, a judgment we call the tribulation period. The tribulation period. And with regard to this judgment, guys, he says, having made reference to a lot now, keep that in mind, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how, after he's talked about Lot, how God delivered Lot out of Sodom before he could even, the judgment could fall. Lot had to be gone. Peter then makes the application. He says, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He's got a future judgment in mind. A future judgment. We've talked about the great tribulation. The idea that Peter is setting forth is that God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. And again, guys, I believe it's a reference to how God is going to rapture his church out of the world before he pours out his judgment. The rapture is an evac procedure. It's an evacuation. The rapture is God evacuating the righteous off the earth before he pours his judgment upon this Christ-rejecting world. Jesus affirms this in the form of a promise made to all true believers who will be alive on the earth just before the tribulation period begins. In fact, turn to Revelation 3. So Peter talks about using Lot as an example of how God always delivers the righteous before his judgment falls. Jesus affirmed that very idea with a promise that he made to all to the true church, 
living on the earth before the tribulation period begins. But Revelation 3, verse 10, Jesus said, Because, talking to the church of um, Philadelphia, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Notice that Jesus doesn't say he will keep them through, through the hour of trial. Now, there are a lot of people who believe the church is going through the, the tribulation period. And they will read this and say that, well, he's going to preserve them through the tribulation period. But that's not what the Greek, the Greek word is ek, ek. And it means from or out of. He is going to, Jesus, I'm going to save you out of the earth before this time of trial or testing, as some of your translations may put it, uh, comes upon the earth. Our, well, that's not a 60-minute length of time. It's just simply used as an indefinite period of time. We know that uh, it's going to encompass all seven years, but will really ramp up into high gear the tribulation of God, judgment of God, starting at the midpoint of the last seven years. Uh, so the hour. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. The word trial, there's a Greek word that means adversity, trouble, or tribulation. Jesus promises to keep them, and that he's talking about the, the last day's true church. In Revelation 2 and 3, you have seven churches mentioned. These were literal churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, to the first four, he says something to the effect... Um, you know, you're, 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 you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be martyred, but it's going to be okay, all right? So you're not going to make it to the end of the church age, but it's going to be okay. To the last three, I'm sorry, the first three says that, the last four, he basically says, persevere till I come, hang in there. So the first three churches don't make it to the end of the church age, the last four are around. Now, I didn't plan on talking about this, so I don't have notes in front of me, but these seven churches in some ways represent the church age from Pentecost and the suffering of the first century all the way to the return of Christ, rapture. And so you have, you know, you have the, uh, the sufferings of the first three centuries uh, under the Roman government. And the last four churches, and I'll give, tell you what I believe they are, I believe, uh, I believe Sardis is pretty much dead Protestantism. Not quite dead. Uh, even some in Sardis are not dead, he said, but for the most part. So kind of think of dead mainline Protestantism. Thyatira, the word means continual sacrifice. That represents a Catholic church. Every Catholic church in the world, when they do, the priest does the Mass, they, they, re, they re-offer the body of Christ all over again. It's a continual or perpetual sacrifice. Then you have Philadelphia, which I believe speaks of the true church, the evangelical church. Not that everybody that goes to the evangelical churches is necessarily saved, but for the most part, all right? And then you have the church of Laodicea, which I believe speaks of the liberal churches of today, uh, the very liberal churches that don't believe in the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection of Christ or, you know, any one of a number of 
essential doctrines for a person to be saved. They're very much into the social justice, the, uh, the, the green stuff, the environmentalism, th- those kind of churches. And Jesus is saying, you know, he's knocking to get in, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me, opens the door, I'll come in, and I'll, have, I'll dine with you, right? So he's not even in that church, although these folks think he is because they're wealthy often, you know? Uh, you think you're rich and in need of nothing, he said, but you're really poor, wretched, blind, miserable, naked, and so on. Uh, physically, you're wealthy, but spiritually, you're destitute. But Jesus promises to keep the Philadelphia church, which represents, I believe, true Christianity, evangelicalism. He promises to keep them from the period of trouble or tribulation, which is coming upon the whole world. And again, there has not been a worldwide judgment since the days of Noah, but there's coming another one. And it's going to affect the entire world. Again, we call it the tribulation period. Now, guys, this is a play on words in the Greek, the verbs. Jesus said, because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you. You've kept my word, so I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. The New Testament warns us that in the last days, at one point, a great apostasy uh, would take hold in the church. Uh, The word apostasy means a falling away or a departing from the faith, the faith, uh, the one that Jude mentions that was uh, committed to the church. It's the body of truth we call the New Testament, all right? There are a lot of churches that have forsaken uh, the truth of God, His Word. They might give it lip service, but there's a lot of churches that do not teach it. They don't believe it is the Word of God in its entirety. It might contain... Uh, God's word here and there, but for the most part, it's a collection of stories and myths and moral uh, things where you can apply. You know, it's just not, but it's not God's word. Not, definitely not inspired like we think it is. So the New Testament warns us that there is coming a time, and we're seeing the beginning. I mean, it's been happening for the last 30 or 40 years, but it's really starting to roll now. In fact, we're going to be hosting a showing of something a documentary coming out this spring called The Enemy Within the Church. You can go online and type in theenemywithinthechurch.com and a group of evangelical pastors, leaders, have put together this It's, it's probably done now, although there might be uh, kind of just uh, tweaking it a little bit, talking about how the devil has infiltrated the church in ways that you are not even, you don't even realize. We're seeing the apostasy right now. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, said that in the last days men would have a form of godliness, but listen, they would deny the power thereof. They would have a form of godliness. You talk about the church now. People in the church would have a form of godliness, but would deny the power thereof. What does that mean? We well, don't have to turn there because we've talked about this. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for the Jew and Gentile. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. But again, Paul tells us that just before Jesus' return, many pastors and churches 
will be ashamed of the true gospel and will be seeking to tickle ears instead of proclaiming truth. That's becoming more and more uh, reality. That more and more churches are only interested in what works, very pragmatic approach to Christianity. Look around, well, what seems, to, what do people like? What is going to get them in the doors here? What's going to grow this? You know, it's all about nickels and noses, right? You know, it's all about how many people can we get to come to church who will then, you know, fill the uh, empty seats, give us money to run the church. And, and so whatever seems to work, let's go that route. Well, what about just teaching the Bible? Just teaching the Bible. People don't want to hear that. I don't even give a little bit here and there, but we, you know, and I was talking to one guy who was saying that, um, that uh, in his area there's a, there was a new church that sprang up and, um, and, and, and you know, it was, uh, you know, a real kind of a, a production, laser lights, smoke machines, uh, you know, and, and this is what draws people. Once you get them in the seats, though, what are you doing for them? Getting people into the church to, you know, fill up seats is not that hard. I, I could go online and, and advertise free beer and pizza. Every Sunday, this place would be packed. <laughs> Honestly, right? Free beer and pizza, you know? Come on out to church. Look, if we're doing what God has told us to do, which is faithfully teaching his word, right? And loving each other. If we're doing that, whoever comes to our church and stays... I believe because the Holy Spirit has drawn them. If the Holy Spirit draws them and we're being faithful to teach His Word, well, they're going to get saved. They're going to grow. They're going to go out and disciple or share the gospel and disciple. That, that's what I would rather have 100 on fire Christians than 10,000 lukewarm pew sitters. Honestly, give me 100 people on fire for Jesus Christ. And I don't care if we have to meet out in the fields out here because we have no building. That's really all that matters because we're the church, right? We're the church. Years ago, I heard a pastor say, actually, I was reading it, how this pastor was showing around uh, another visiting pastor uh, their brand new uh, facility. And the visiting pastor was looking around at this incredible structure and fellowship hall and sanctuary and food court and uh, he was just really taken. He said, wow, this is quite a facility. And the pastor who pastors that church said, yeah, but nothing ever happens here. Keep your building. Keep it. I, I want the Lord to be moving. And, and he, he's not going to move if the word of God is not being taught. Paul tells us right before Jesus' return. Many pastors and churches will be ashamed of the true gospel. Instead, will seek to tickle ears, to fill seats, to bring in money. But not all. Even in days of great apostasy, there are always the faithful remnant, right? God always had a faithful remnant in the Old Testament times. Even when Israel became so apostate, they were worse than the, the heathen nations at one point. God always had his faithful remnant. Remember Elijah? Or was it Elisha? I forgot. I think it was maybe Elijah. And, um, you know, he faced off with the 850 uh, prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. Uh, and uh, God wiped all these false prophets out. But then Jezebel, they were, these guys were her prophets. Uh, when she found out, she, she, uh, she uh, you know, uh, threatened him. 
to, you know, may God do so, do to me and more so, if I don't make your life like theirs by this time tomorrow. If you, I'm going to kill you, she said. So what does he do? He runs down into the wilderness and hides in a cave. You know? And the Lord says, basically, what are you doing down here? Well, Lord, you know, I'm the only one left that loves you. And I'm, you know, I'm, everyone else, you know, is not faithful. I'm the only guy left. And God says, first of all, you're not the only guy left. I got 7,000 that haven't kissed an image of Baal or bowed a knee to him. I've always got my faithful remnant. But I didn't ask you, you know, why you're down here. I'm asking you, what are you doing for me down here? Nothing. Nothing. We're not supposed to run away from the world and and all we're supposed to stand up to it be a light now you could paraphrase verse 10 this way because jesus speaking because you have persevered the word of what i have endured and and that's what he's talking about the word of what i have endured what does he mean crucifixion resurrection the price that jesus paid to purchase our redemption the gospel because you have clung to the gospel you're not ashamed of it you have clung to it and you have preached it faithfully because of that i will keep you the true church alive at the time of the rapture from a particular period of judgment that is coming upon the whole world to try or the greek could be to test those who dwell on the earth keep means to guard protect or to preserve the idea is from god's judgment Dwell on the earth is a reference to what Revelation mentions ten times. The earth dwellers. It's a term that's used. It always refers to unbelievers, by the way. These are people that, you know, we all live on the earth. But this is not our home, all right? Earth dwellers are those people that this is their home. This is their, they're not sojourners and pilgrims like we are, passing through. No, this is their home. This is where they live. This is, this is all they want, okay? I believe, guys, this verse promises, Revelation 3.10, that the church will be delivered from the tribulation, thus supporting a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, not everyone agrees with me, and I can make the case uh, with many other scriptures, but I do believe Revelation 3.10 is Jesus' promise to keep his true church from the tribulation period, all right? Dr. Henry Morris said, and I quote, post-tribulationists, those who believe that the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation period, after it's over, then the rapture. I don't see what, how that's the blessed hope, which is what the Bible calls the rapture. You know, hey, you're going to go through the tribulation period, get the snot kicked out of you, but you know what? And then I'm going to come for you. What? Forget it, Lord. I don't need you then, right? But he said, look, Post-tribulationists reject this conclusion, contending that there is no reason why Christians in the last generation deserve to escape the Great Tribulation. The fact is, however, that Christians in every other generation have escaped the Great Tribulation, so there is no reason why the last generation should be singled out for participation in it, end quote. That's true, okay? I like that when I first read that. Look, Jesus likened this judgment, the great tribulation, to Noah's flood, which was also worldwide. That was the first judgment of God upon the whole world. In fact, turn to Matthew 24. It's interesting how Jesus tied the first 
worldwide judgment, Noah's flood, with the last coming worldwide judgment. Verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Noah, the Bible tells us, was building this ark with his kids, his sons, for 120 years. We kind of kid about it, you know, parked in his driveway for 120 years, right? And, uh, you know, the whole time as they're building this thing, he's preaching to, you know, because it probably drew quite a crowd, right? In fact, you know, if, if it was going on today, it would probably have tour buses that uh, that pulled up periodically. <laughs> yeah, here's here's this uh, goofball Noah. Look at this big boat he's building. We don't know why he's talking about rain. We've never seen rain, flooding. We don't know what that's all about. But look, he's got this thing going on. But um, Jesus said that the world, he Noah was preaching to people for 120 years. Right up until the day God told him, go in the yard, God shut the door. People were clueless. And the flood came. They were unaware. Totally unaware. Why were they unaware? Noah was preaching for 120 years. Because they chose not to listen. Just like today. There has never been a time in the history of mankind where we have more outlets and opportunities to, to share the gospel. You're talking about the radio and the internet. And, and, and everything, right? There is no reason why anybody on the planet wouldn't know that judgment is coming. But it will come and take most of the people of this world by surprise. Why? Not because God wasn't faithful in proclaiming the truth. Because they had ears that they closed them off to the truth. Look, in Genesis, at the time of the flood, three groups of people were mentioned. I'm just trying to lay this out so you kind of get an idea where, where Peter's coming from. But I want to expand on, on what he's actually teaching, okay? In Genesis, at the time of the flood... Three groups of people were mentioned. You had unbelievers who perished in the flood. You had Noah and his family who were preserved through the flood, in the ark, of course. And then Enoch, who was taken to heaven before the flood. Now, Enoch wasn't a group, but he represents a group, okay? The tribulation period. Now, the final world, second and final world judgment that is coming upon this whole world, when we study that, the scripture also talks about three groups in relation to that event. Unbelievers who will perish in this judgment. Believing Jews who will be preserved through this judgment. Think of the 144,000 sealed, right, by God. And then number three, the church who will be raptured before the judgment. Enoch is a type of the church. The question is, was Enoch mid-flood post-flood, or pre-flood. <laughs> so stupid. You know. <laughs> you know. What are you? I'm mid-trib. What was Enoch? Mid-flood? He represents the church. You know, when was he taken? Before the... He was pre-flood, right? I'm pre-trib. I believe the church can be taken before the tribulation period starts. Look, the hour of trial, Revelation 3.10. And I'm looking at my watch, so don't worry. I'm not going to keep you too long. The hour of trial mentioned in Revelation 3.10 
is really a, a, a um, reference to Daniel's 70th week, and I do not have time to get into that. No way. But you can read Daniel 9, verses 25 to 27, and uh, how God has uh, set aside 70 seven-year periods to deal pretty exclusively with the nation of Israel. Now, 69 were concurrent from the time the command went forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah, um, you know, that was 69 seven-year periods, okay? We know from uh, the time that uh, Artaxerxes gave the command to Nehemiah was March 14th, 445 B.C., until the time the Lord Jesus came and presented himself as Messiah, April 632 A.D., uh, he was rejected, of course, if he had been accepted by the nation, he would have brought the kingdom, and that seventh, 70th seven-year period, that final, would have taken place right there. But they rejected their king. God's time clock stopped with one seven-year period to go, dealing with Israel. And what started after God's time clock, prophetic time clock, stopped? What period did God plug in? The church age. The church age. We are still in the church age. The church age technically goes from Pentecost, Acts 2, to the rapture, which could happen at any moment. Okay, When the rapture happens, the church is out of here. And that final seven-year period that God has set aside to deal with Israel, some unfinished business that God's got to deal with with the nation of Israel, that last seven-year period will officially begin when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, you can read about this in Daniel 9, when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, which will no doubt allow them to rebuild their temple, God's prophetic time clock will start again. And seven years later, 360 years, seven, 360 years later, you will have the return of Christ. But um, this last seven-year period is called in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob being Israel, okay? The church is gone. The church is out of here. The church will be in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord promises to keep his church out of the future time of testing and judgment that is coming upon unbelievers. Unbelievers will either pass this test. He talks about, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you from the hour of testing. We don't have to go through any testing. I mean, this is with regard to salvation and receiving Christ. Of course, once we're saved, we go through uh, times of testing and things like that to grow our faith. But the context of Revelation 3, verse 10, is the Lord is saying, there is coming a time where I'm going to test everybody on the earth, whether they're going to receive my son or reject him. You don't have to be here for that. You've already passed that test. You're my people, is the idea. Okay? And again... During this tribulation period, this time of testing, as God calls it, unbelievers will either pass the test by rep repenting and getting saved, or they will fail the test by refusing to repent and being damned. Now, I'd like to make one more point about Lot, and then we'll close. I believe that even though Lot was a believer, we know because he was a righteous man, Peter said, he was a carnal believer, a carnal believer. We know this because he chose to live in Sodom, again, a very wicked town. 
when he could have been living with his uncle Abraham, by the way, Abraham represented, I mean, was one of the true examples of faith in the Bible. Tremendous man of faith, right? Spiritual man. He did live with Abraham at one time, but got restless because, you know, they both had so many flocks and herds, they were kind of getting on each other. And so uh, Abraham said, look, you're my nephew, we're family, let's not fight. Look, you take wherever you want to go, you, you pick first, and I'll take what's left. I'll go the other way. So Lot looked and saw the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah were very fertile, and they were. Probably the most fertile area on the planet before God wiped it out. But he could have gone back to his uncle's house. Instead, he chose to live in Sodom. Again, Genesis 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. The city gate, guys, was the entrance to the city. That's true. But in biblical times, uh, that was the place where the city fathers or aldermen sat uh, to conduct city business and also to judge in civil and criminal matters. Now, Lot had been in Sodom for 20 years by this time. And now at this time, he's a leader. He's an alderman in the city of Sodom. How did he get to this place? Listen to this digression. Genesis 13.10, he looked at Sodom. Two verses later, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. In chapter 14, he moved into Sodom. And here he is pictured as sitting in the gate of Sodom as a leader. In other words, he arrived there one step at a time, just like every believer that becomes entangled in the world. It doesn't happen all at once. It happens one step at a time, like descending down a dark staircase, somebody said. Turn to Psalm 1 quickly. You all know Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. And I go to Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, because if you think about it, you have Lot and Abraham. I'm not saying the psalmist was thinking of them when he wrote the psalm, but they definitely would fit in. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Well, that was Lot, right? But the godly man or woman does not do that. That's Abraham. But his delight, Abraham, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So the contrast between uh, a guy like Lot and a guy like Abraham. Lot further demonstrated, guys, his carnality by how he lingered, don't miss this, by how he lingered when the angels told him he needed to leave Sodom immediately because God's judgment was about ready to fall. Verse 15 of Genesis 19. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed with the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, can you imagine that? You know, The men took hold of his hand, the, the angels, his wife's hand in the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. This is very sad. Even though Lot knows God's judgment is coming, he's still dragging his feet because he doesn't want to leave, really. He doesn't want to leave Sodom. There are too many Christians that know what the Bible says about God's coming judgment. Now, I say many Christians. You say, well, don't all Christians? No, no. Thank God. We have a heritage at Calvary Chapel. And I say, you know, thank God for the pastor God gave me who laid a good, solid, prophetic foundation 
that I built my, you know, God built my faith upon. There's a lot of churches that don't ever talk about prophecy. People that have no idea what the rapture is or what, that Jesus is even coming back again. Oh, that's just not, that's not literal. Yeah, it is, you know. But there are a lot of Christians, evangelicals, who know what the Bible says about God's coming judgment upon this world. And yet, instead of forsaking the world immediately, listen, they are lingering, not wanting to make a complete break from it. They're trying to serve two masters, and I think that's what Lot was trying to do. Trying to serve two masters. Jesus said, you can't do that. You can't serve God and mammon. Money, you can't serve God and the world. Many Christians try. You know, Lot found himself in probably the most miserable place any believer can find themselves in, him or her. He had too much of the Lord in him to be comfortable in the world any longer and too much of the world in him to be comfortable around spirit-filled believers. He was a carnal guy. And yet, the angel said, I can't judge Sodom until you are delivered out of it. Even though we can't condone the carnality of Lot's life as a believer, we can definitely take great comfort in the grace of God shown to him here. Peter, again, called Lot a righteous man. He was righteous not because he was so godly. Understand that. He was righteous because he believed in God, and God declared him righteous based on his faith. That was exactly how Abraham achieved the status of righteous man in his life. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and God declared him, or God accounted righteousness to his account. Look, although the Bible holds up people, let me just put it this way, all throughout the Bible, God holds up people that were flawed in many ways. Some were flat-out carnal, like Lot. But he holds them up. He teaches us that people get saved not because they're so worthy. They're not. Or so godly. Many times they aren't. They get saved because they believe. Now, once we're saved because of our faith, then the process of sanctification kicks in. And for the rest of our life, God is working on us to make us more into the image of Christ. The more we submit to that, the faster we get transformed into the image of Christ. A lot of Christians, though, who never get really too far in the process of sanctification, because again, like Lot, they don't want to make a break from the world. A lot of people in the Bible that are absolutely carnal like Lot, that God holds up and declares that they're saved. And they weren't saved because they deserved to be saved, again, but because they believed in God's Son, and he declared them righteous by his grace. Look, this, I'll tell you what, should comfort all of us. And I believe this is why God does it. If God can save guys like Lot, Samson, Jacob, and others, there's hope for all of us. There's hope for all of us, even when we fall short in our walk. We're saved by grace, not of ourselves, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's a gift of God, not the result of our good works, lest anyone should boast. And yet, we would be wise to look for fruit in our lives. We're not saved by our works, but if you think you're saved, you should have some works, right? Jesus called it fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. 1 John 2, verses 28 and 29, John says now, And now little children abide in him, in Christ, that when he appears, the rapture is in view, I believe, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him 
at his coming. Now that right there tells me when the rapture happens, there's going to be a lot of lots zipped up into heaven. Okay? A lot of Samson's, a lot of Jacob's. A lot of carnal men and women who were saved and being saved by grace. When the rapture happens, they're going because, not according to works, but they're going to be ashamed when they see the Lord face to face because they did live such carnal lives. I'm sure it's going to dawn on them in a microsecond, what was I hanging on to the world for when the world is passing away? Why wasn't I full on for Jesus? But John ends by saying, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So, you know, how do I know I'm saved? Has your life changed at all? Are your desires different? Do you desire to be in the word? Be in fellowship with God's people? Uh, seek him in prayer and so on. Share the, your faith with others. It's called the fruits of righteousness. Look, it's true that at the rapture, many carnal Christians will be dragged from this world. Like Lot, before the judgment of God falls, they will still be raptured because, again, we are saved by grace, not by our works or holy living, whatever that means. But having said that, be careful because John also says in 1 John 2 that a person's carnality may indicate they aren't saved. So if you're really saved and you're just kind of living a carnal life, when the rapture happens, you're going to, you're going to be taken. You're going to be ashamed, but you'll be taken. But John says in 1 John 2, 3-6, the carnality could simply be an indication that you're not saved. I'll read it to you. We'll close. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. Now by this we know that we know him. All right. Here's the litmus test. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know I know I know Jesus? If we keep his commandments. Now that doesn't mean perfectly. None of us will this side of glory. But I'll tell you one thing. Before I got saved, I maybe kept a commandment or two here and there, but for the most part lived for the flesh. And now as a Christian, I may live for the flesh here or there, you know, but for the most part, I want to obey God and do what pleases him. Verse 4, he who says, I know him, I'm a Christian, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him, that we're saved, that we're in Christ. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he, Jesus, walked. So if you're a person says, well, I'm a Christian, well, why do you believe that? I go to church. Yeah, but when you're not in church the rest of the week, are you living like Jesus? And I, I mean, none of us are going to get there fully. But there's a difference between a genuine, born-again, spirit-filled Christian going out into the world and really wanting to serve the Lord and sometimes blowing it than a person who gives God lip service and leaves church, and there's no intention of really living for Jesus, dying to self, uh, representing the product honestly, uh, whatever. A lot is the type of those carnal believers that will be taken in the rapture before God's judgment. That's true. A judgment that's going to fall on this entire world. But will be ashamed when they see Jesus because they didn't fully live for him while they were on the earth. So I, I don't know about you, uh, but 
Wow, that little statement that he makes about God knows how to deliver the godly out of trials and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, there's a lot of theology that we need to know there. And a lot becomes a type of a believer in Christ, even carnal Christians are going to be taken when the rapture happens. So we'll continue on because he has a lot more to say. And God willing, we'll take it up next week. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, which is truth. And Lord, if we walk in the light of its truth, we'll never stumble in darkness. We'll be prepared for what's coming. And we thank you, Lord, that soon and very soon, the angel will shout, the trumpet will sound, and you will, we will hear your voice saying, come up here. And at that time, we'll never, ever, from that time on, be separated from you ever again. Thank you, Lord. That day is coming, but right now give us grace to live for you in in the darkness of this world, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.